Welcome to Living Hope Church. Welcome to those of you joining us online. We're so glad you're here. If you have children that are kindergarten through third grade and they're going down to Children's Church, they can dismiss out the back uh, with Miss uh, Melody. All right, well, we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, um, if you'd like to head that uh, direction. Today, we're continuing our series that we've called uh, Miraculous Encounters, in which we're looking at some of the miracles of Jesus. Uh, and what we see of these is we get to see these miracles of Jesus, but more importantly, uh, we, get to, we get to learn about who Jesus is and what our relationship with him uh, looks like. Last week, we were in Mark chapter 1, and we saw Jesus heal a man with leprosy. And in that, we saw how, how we come to Jesus unclean and desperate. But uh, because of who he is and, and despite who we are, he offers forgiveness and new life to any and all that will come and ask. We saw Jesus' compassion, his love, his willingness to forgive and make us clean. And finally, we saw that, that Jesus sends us out with intentionality. So today, we're just going to turn the page, one, one page in the book of Mark to Mark chapter 2 and see this next encounter that Jesus has in his ministry. These two miracles are also recorded in the book of Luke in chapter 5, and in Luke's account, they also occur back to back. But today's miracle is one, um, I don't know that I've ever heard preached on, but it's one that's taught every, uh, every year in the children's Sunday school curriculum. So if you've been around church for any length of time, it's a story uh, that you likely have heard, uh, and if you're new to church, it's a story that uh, I would wager to guess becomes one of your favorites. Uh, but in this story, we're going to see one incredible truth about Jesus and how desperate uh, our need and how desperate our faith uh, should not only be for ourselves, but for those that we know and love as well. This is a story not so much about the man that is healed, but it's a story about Jesus and the desperate faith of good friends. And desperate is such a, a good word for this story, we we'll won't get to it, but it illustrates the urgency of the situation. Google defines desperation as a state of despair, typically one which results in rash or extreme behavior. A state of despair that leads to rash or extreme behavior. I think we all know the saying that desperate times call for desperate behavior. Uh, in a football game, it is desperation that leads a coach to call an extremely low percentage play like a Hail Mary because times are desperate and it's their only hope. Uh, for some, it takes desperation and the threat of someone leaving to get down on their knee and commit. Uh, for some, it's the desperation of an arrest or an overdose that leads them to do the hard things it takes to overcome addiction. I remember a couple of years ago, it was a normal Tuesday uh, morning when we got a call that a good friend of ours uh, was in the hospital. He had just had a stroke. The situation was desperate, so it led us to drop everything for that day and for that week to help him and his wife desperation, a, a last chance changes the way we respond and act. It often leads us to do hard things, but also to do radical and crazy things. Desperate times call for desperate measures. That proverb is believed to have originated with the ancient Greek uh, physician Hippocrates, and it is referred to the reality that when life is on the line, we are willing to do the radical, the crazy in order to save life. You know, you think about, it, think about it, on a normal Wednesday, I'm not letting somebody cut me open. But when my life is on the line, emergency, emergency surgery becomes the obvious. Or I've got a brother and sister that are in the medical field, and they talk about doing trachs like that's just a normal thing. Like, I'm not letting somebody cut a hole in my neck. But when you can't breathe and time is fleeting, the radical measure becomes the obvious solution. 
So what we're going to see today is the desperate faith of some friends and the desperate measures that they go to to get their friend to the feet of Jesus. And what we're going to see is that it's their desperate faith, their desperate measures that lead their friend of faith to healing, to new life in Jesus. So we're in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Mark writes, a few days later, so a few days after that healing we, we visited last week, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. So it's only a few days after Jesus healed the man with leprosy that we saw last week. He, and in that story, remember, he'd given the man specific instructions of how to go and who to share with. But the man had gone and shared Jesus and his story uh, with everyone. And the man's disobedience has turned Jesus' uh, his ministry into a bit of a sideshow. Jesus came to heal, yes, but his primary purpose has been teaching about the kingdom of God, forgiving sins, and ultimately his purpose is to give his life for the sins of the world. Jesus is far, uh, far more concerned about the faith, the spiritual, because he knows that ultimately the spiritual is mankind's greatest need. Not their health, not their leprosy, not their blindness, not their ailment. But there are many that are hurting, and they want Jesus to heal them. And others just want to see the show, so the crowd is here. Uh, Ray Stedman writes in his commentary, It is clear that he was avoiding the streets because they had been turned into a healing campaign. Everywhere Jesus went, people besieged him with requests for healing and the casting out of demons so that he was unable to do what he had come to do primarily, which was preach the word of God. So this home here, it is overflowing with people as Jesus teaches. There's no social distancing happening to the point that people are standing at the door, the, the windows, trying to hear the message, trying to just get a glimpse of, of Jesus. Verse 3 says, some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. So this paralyzed man, he's got some good friends, friends that care about him. So much so that they are willing to pick him up and carry him on a mat to go and see Jesus. Because they've heard that this man can heal. What awesome friends. But they run into a problem, don't they? Verse 3 again, some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get, to get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then they lowered the man, lowered the mat the man was lying on. So these are not only good friends when things are good, but they are desperate and determined friends. The room is packed, so they think to themselves, let's go through the roof. I mean, that is creativity and desperation right there. In that time, there was usually a stairwell that would lead up to a flat roof. So there wasn't a ladder necessary like today. And these flat roofs were often used as a location in the late evening to eat dinner, to relax, and to enjoy the cool of the day. The roofs were typically made of thatch or tile, laid over beams, and covered in a hard mud. So these men get on the roof, and they start pulling this apart. They start tearing the roof apart. They dig a hole in the roof. Can you just imagine like how much noise that must have made for those that were in the house? Can you imagine the homeowner, how he must have felt when a, a hole was appearing in his roof? I mean, I, I think I would have had some issue with these men, but the men didn't care. They were willing to do whatever it took, to pay whatever price it took to get their friend before Jesus. Verse 4, since they could not get him to, to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was laying on. Verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. 
we'll come back to this, but, but notice that Mark says when Jesus saw their faith, the faith of the friends, he said to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. Also notice Jesus doesn't say get up and walk, but he says your sins are forgiven. I'm sure the man and the friends at that moment were like, hey, that is really great, Jesus, but you're missing the real need. You're missing the more desperate need. This man is paralyzed and he needs to walk. I think we read that and we think the same thing, don't we? Or maybe we come to church and, and we hear about a God that loves us and that offers forgiveness of our sins and eternal life if we will trust him. And that it's all about him and what he has done. And we hear that and we think, well, man, forgiveness of sins and eternal life, that sounds great. But my real need is my health or, or my real need is my marriage or my finances or my past or my friends and so on. We'll talk about this later, but, uh, but as well, our initial reaction as well, when it is to come to Jesus, it's, it's Jesus, I'm not sure you're, you're, you're fixing the real need here. And what Jesus said to this man, and he says to us, he says, no. He says, there is no more desperate, no more urgent, no more important need than forgiveness of our sins. So because of the faith of his friends, Jesus heals this man's greatest need and he forgives his sins. He makes him right with a holy God. But the Jewish religious leaders here, they're not going to take kindly to this. Verse 6. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? We're going to come back to this in point one. But take note that the teachers of the law knew exactly what Jesus was saying. To say that he forgave his sins was a direct claim by Jesus to be God and to be the promised Messiah. Jesus here is saying, I am God. I am the promised one sent, and I alone have the power to forgive sins. That's a huge claim, and it, it, it's already angering the Jewish religious leaders early in his ministry. Verse 8, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. The man got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like that. And so Jesus says to them, what is easier? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or easier to say to a lame man, get up and walk? Now, clearly, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Because we don't know if it's happened or not. But if I say to the lame man, walk, then you could tell right away whether or not I have power, I have the power that I'm claiming to have. If I say get up and walk to a lame man and he doesn't do it, you know right away that I am a phony. So Jesus' logic goes like this. We know that forgiving sins and making the lame walk are both things that only God can do. So if I can say to a lame man, get up and walk, and he does it, then it's safe to say that if I say to him, your sins are forgiven, that I can do that too. If I can do the verifiable one, you can trust that I can do the unverifiable one. Does that, does that make sense, what he's doing here? And showing that he has the power to make this lame man walk, Jesus is also proving that he has the power to make good on this promise to forgive sins. Jesus' miracles that we talked about last week are a testimony to his power, to his deity. And because he has power over the world, it is proof and it is safe to trust that he has power to forgive sins. Something only God, to, God can do. So Jesus says, you don't believe me because you can't see what I've done in this heart? Then watch this. Grab your mat and walk out the door. Let's pray.
Dear Lord, we thank you. Uh, we thank you that you do have power, Lord. We thank you that, that you do have the power to forgive sins. Lord, we thank you that you sent uh, Jesus a- as your promised Messiah and that he went and he gave his life so that any that believe in him can experience forgiveness of sins and eternal life. God, we thank you that, that we could experience that greatest miracle, which is the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life in you. So God, I pray that as we, we walk through this passage, that you would open our hearts and our minds to what it is that you want to teach us today. God, I pray that if there's someone here that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, that hasn't experienced salvation and faith in you, that today might be the day that they surrender their lives and experience your forgiveness of sins. God, we thank you that you are able, that you have the power, that you can heal, Lord. Uh, God, we thank you uh, for that. So God, we just pray that, that as we study this word, you'd open our eyes and our hearts to what you have for us, Lord that we would be the kind of friends and the kind of people that take our friends and our family to the feet of Jesus. God, we love you. It's your name we pray. Amen. So I mentioned as we talked through the passage, but our first point is simply that Jesus has the power to forgive sins. And this is significant for a couple of reasons. The first reason this is significant is because it's a clear claim by Jesus to be the promised Messiah, to be God in flesh. When Jesus said, uh, your sins are forgiven, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they quite clearly understood what Jesus was saying. And that's why they immediately cry, blasphemy. They knew he was claiming to be God. Psalm 130 says only God can forgive. And why can only God forgive sins? Because ultimately every sin we commit is ultimately committed against God. And because he is the one sinned against, he is the only one that can forgive. I can't forgive you for what you have done against someone else. If you rob someone else's house, I'm not the one that can forgive you. The offense wasn't against me. In the same way, I can't forgive you for the offenses you have committed against God. Even if you rob my house, I can forgive you for what you've done for me, but I still cannot forgive you for what you have done against God. And all sin is ultimately committed against God, and therefore it's only God that can forgive sins. Now the teachers of the law, they knew this. They understood this. And so when Jesus told the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven, all they could think is blasphemy. Because who can forgive sins but God alone? So here in this passage, Jesus quite clearly claims to be God. He claims to be the promised Messiah who would come and give his life for the sins of the world. Now there are are some scholars in the world today that, that claim that Jesus never said he was God. Or that he was the Messiah. They, they will claim that that belief was added by the disciples in the early church after his death. But that's simply not true. Right here is a clear example of Jesus claiming that he is God. That he is the promised Messiah. And it's his claim to be God throughout his ministry that will ultimately get him crucified. Because the leaders viewed it as blasphemy. Just like we would, if someone came in here and said they were God, we would look at them like they were a crazy person. So Jesus claimed to be God, but because he was God in flesh, he had the power to forgive sins, and he still has that power to forgive sins today. And it is that forgiveness of sins that he still offers today to any and all that will repent, turn, and follow after him. Warren Wearsby wrote, forgiveness is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performs. It meets the greatest need, it costs the greatest price, and it brings the greatest blessing and the most lasting results. Because Jesus went to the cross and died the death that our sins deserve, and he rose victorious over the grave, he offers forgiveness and new life to any and all that will follow after him. 
And that power to forgive sins not only changes our lives for the better today, but it changes our lives for eternity. Jesus has the power to forgive sins, and he offers that to you today. This past week, I went to a, a funeral for my friend uh, Rudy, Ch- Fran- uh, Rudy Sanchez, who is a pastor in Dubois, Wyoming. Uh, and the funeral was full of tears as, as everyone grieved that they won't uh, get another hug from Rudy. Rudy gave incredible hugs. Uh, I'm sad I won't walk into a state meeting in two weeks and he won't run up to me and hug me and tell me that he loves me. I won't get a, fo- a phone call encouraging me. But there was also joy at this funeral because there was no doubt where Rudy had placed his faith. If you spent five minutes with Rudy, you knew he had placed his faith in Jesus. And you knew he had given his life to make him known. And because of that faith in Jesus, his sins were forgiven. And the Bible assures us he is in heaven today with his Savior. There is assurance because Jesus has the power and he has made a way for sins to be forgiven. Jesus has the power to forgive, and he offers that forgiveness to any and all that will turn and follow him even today. So if you're here today and you're unsure if you've ever trusted Jesus with your life or you know you haven't, and you've never experienced his forgiveness of sins, I would encourage you to take that step of faith today. Our greatest need, the Bible tells us, is not the temporal. It's not our health. It's not our finances. It's not our job situation, but our greatest need is our sin, which separates us from a holy God. But the promise here is that Jesus has the power to forgive, and he has made a way. And you can experience that greatest miracle ever today by asking Jesus for forgiveness and putting your faith in him. The Bible tells us if you do that with a genuine heart, with a genuine faith, then he will forgive, and you will experience eternal life in him. It's all about Jesus and what he has done on the cross And as he rose victorious over the grave, he offers forgiveness to you. So if you have questions about what it looks like, it would be my joy and my privilege to share with you more. And I know if you have a friend that is a follower of Jesus, it would be their joy and their privilege to share the good news of Jesus with you as well. To answer any questions you might have. And those that are here today that are already followers of Jesus, it is the good news that Jesus has the power to forgive that we get to carry to our family, friends, coworkers, and neighbors. And just as this paralyzed man had friends that by faith carried him to the feet of Jesus, that is our call and our purpose still today. And so that's our next point. The determined, desperate faith of friends carried the paralyzed man to the feet of Jesus. It's such an incredible story. Uh, Just an incredible story of what our lives should look like. Verse 3, some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat, the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. What incredible friends. And these friends were convinced that the greatest thing that they could do for their friend who was in need was to get him to the feet of Jesus. And they would do whatever it took to get him there. And then look at verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Mark here and Luke in his account in Luke 5 seem to say that Jesus performs this miracle not so much because of the man's faith, the paralyzed man's faith, but because of the determined, desperate faith of his friends. This determined, desperate faith that led them to tear through a roof to get their friend before the feet of Jesus. Pastor J.D. Greer said it like this. He said, You ask, well, why didn't this paralyzed man ask Jesus for himself? He says, I don't know. 
Maybe he was so sick that he could barely speak anymore. Or maybe he'd just been lame for so long that he had given up all hope. He had just stopped believing the future could ever be any different for him. And so into that gap, into that void of despair, their faith, the faith of these friends stepped in. And they said, no, I believe that Jesus is good and he still cares about you and that he will help you. It was their faith, the friend's faith, that loaded this man onto a stretcher and carried him to where Jesus was. It was their faith that pushed their way through the crowd. It was their faith that spawned the ingenuity and creativity to go to the top of the house and tear the roof open above Jesus' head. It was their faith that made them ignore all the people that must have been yelling, what are you doing? Or the guy that was shouting, get off my roof. It was their faith that set the man down expectantly at Jesus' feet. As if to say, Jesus, what are you going to do about this? When the paralyzed man could do little for himself, it was the active, determined faith of his friends that made a difference for him. And as Christians, as followers of Jesus, this is our call. To have a desperate, determined faith that calls of us to give up our comforts, our preferences, our desires in order that our children, our family, our friends, our neighbors might experience Jesus and experience the forgiveness, hope, and life that he offers to them. Friends, the Bible describes the state of those who don't know Jesus as hopeless. It describes the world as blinded and deceived by the schemes of Satan. Our friends don't know Jesus. Our friends that don't know Jesus, they don't need our judgment and our condemnation. What our friends instead need are friends that are praying for them with determined faith. And who have a desperate enough faith that they will do whatever it takes to get them before Jesus. We are called to be a church. A people who are doing all we can through prayer and through action to get our friends, family, and community to the feet of Jesus. Because we believe he is able, willing, and has the power to forgive and to heal. Jesus who has the power to restore, to give life, and who is our living hope still today. So in your life, it might be a prodigal child. It might be a spouse. It may be a friend that seemingly has no interest in Jesus who are, or who has turned away from the faith. Their spiritual stance is seemingly paralyzed. The call here is don't stop praying. Don't stop serving. Don't stop sharing. Don't stop believing. Continue to pray and to bring them over and over to the feet of Jesus. Pray and serve with determination and desperation, willing to do whatever it takes to bring them before Jesus. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a coworker, a friend. Maybe it's someone that drives you crazy and you are ready to give up on them. Don't give up on them, but instead stand in the gap. Maybe they don't even know their need. Maybe they have given up. Continue to pray. Continue to believe. Continue to carry them to the feet of Jesus. We as followers of Jesus are called to pray and to carry our friends to his feet because we believe that he has the power to heal, to restore, to forgive sins, which is our greatest need, which is our friend's greatest need as well. Believe, have faith that Jesus can and he desires to act not only in your life, but in the life of each and every one of those that surround you every day. Be a person of determined and desperate faith that brings people to the feet of Jesus. One of the greatest pictures of this in the Old Testament is in Ezekiel 22. And in this chapter, God lays out all the sins of Jerusalem through the prophet Israel. And at the end of the passage, in verse 33, uh, the Lord says this. He says, I have looked for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land. So that I would not have to destroy it, but I have found none. 
I think this is one of the most profound illustrations and visuals of the purpose of the local church and the Christian. In this this passage, God looked for one noble man that would stand up and fill the gap for his people, but he found no one. God was looking for just one person willing to stem the tide of immorality and stand before him in the gap. And that's our call as Christians, as the church, to stand in the gap for our friends, neighbors, co-workers, family members that likely don't even recognize their need for a relationship with him. They may not be searching or they may not be able, but we, like these friends, are called to do whatever it takes to get them to Jesus, to serve them to Jesus, to love them to Jesus. We are their intercessors. We are their light. We are their hope. And we're their hope not because there's anything special about us, but we are their hope because we have been saved by God's grace and Jesus' work on the cross. And because of that, we have a responsibility to stand in the gap for them, to pray for them, to shine the light of Jesus into those that God has put in our lives. It's quite possible you may be the the only Christian at your work or in your book club or in your neighborhood or on your block or on your soccer team. Whatever it is, you have a responsibility to stand in the gap for your community, for your friends, praying for God to move in their lives, living as a representative of Jesus in their lives and bringing them to the feet of Jesus. Lamar Cooper, in his commentary on Ezekiel, writes, God's plan for reaching uh, the ungodly, those far from God, and the nations is still the same. He uses godly men and women to stand in the breaches in morality and spirituality and make the difference by calling the nations and individuals to Jesus through faith, righteousness, and commitment to God. The Bible tells us that the reality is if, if our friends don't experience the forgiveness offered through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, then they will be judged for their sins and will spend an eternity in hell for their sins, just as Jerusalem was judged. It's not something to take lightly. If we care about people and love them as Jesus loves them, then we must stand in the gap. We must pray with desperation for them. We must live lives of determination that leads us to value their needs over our preferences and comforts. But there's only one thing that leads us to live lives like these friends. And that is a belief that the need is desperate and that Jesus is able. That's our final point today. The need is desperate, but Jesus is able. We just talked about it, but the Bible is clear that if we and if our friends don't experience forgiveness of our sins through Jesus then we will one day give an account for our sins and live, live for eternity separated from God in a place the Bible calls hell. That's, that's not fun to talk about. That's the reality laid out in the Bible. And it's the reality that leads us to have desperate faith that will do whatever it takes to bring our friends, family, neighbors, and coworkers to Jesus. We believe the need is desperate, but we also believe that Jesus is willing and able to forgive any and all that come to him. And here's the great news. Not only is Jesus willing to heal, but Jesus gave his life to heal. The call to give our lives for others so they can be forgiven follows in the steps of Jesus, who already gave his life so that we and others can be forgiven. This paralyzed man is desperate to be healed. But Jesus is even more desperate to see him restored to God. That's the constant theme of Jesus' ministry. People yearn for physical relief to their pain, and Jesus yearns and he gives his life to see them restored to God. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus is the shepherd who leads the 99 sheep to go and look for the one that is lost. He is the desperate widow who searches her whole house top to bottom to find a lost coin. 
He is the, the scorned, the rejected father who stands at the gate, anxiously waiting for his prodigal son to come home. Who, when he sees him, runs with abandon to hug him and accept him back. In Luke 13, Jesus weeps, the Bible says, over Jerusalem. And says, oh, Jerusalem, how many times have I tried to get you to turn to me? In Luke 19, Jesus summarizes his whole ministry by saying, I have come to seek, to desperately search for, and to give my life to save the lost. Friends, our greatest need and the greatest need of those we love is not a new car. It's not a new toy. It's not a new relationship. It's not a new body. Our greatest need is forgiveness of our sins. That forgiveness which is eternal. And it's that forgiveness that Jesus gave his life for. And it's the good news of forgiveness that we celebrate as Christians every time we gather. And it's that good news of forgiveness that we pray for and we desperately share with our friends. So as we think about this this story, as we think about this story, who, who are you within this story? Maybe you're here today or you're watching online and you realize that you are the paralyzed man in desperate need of an encounter with Jesus. Maybe you showed up today with a litany of needs. Needs and hurts that are very much real, that are very much painful, that are very much desired in your life. But as, we, as you've listened, my prayer is that God has revealed to you that your greatest need is the forgiveness of your sins. Now to be clear, we talked about this last week, but God very much cares he very much has compassion. He very much provides desires to, to provide healing in those hurts and needs that you have. But his greatest desire is to heal your greatest need, which is your sin. Jesus cares so much about forgiveness and seeing you restored to God that he gave his life for your sins. In Romans, it says that the wage or the consequence of our sin is death. And that Jesus came and he lived the sinless life that you couldn't live and I couldn't live. And then he went to the cross as a substitute for our sin. And he died the death that our sin deserved. And then he rose three days later victorious over death, over the grave. And he offers his life, his sinlessness, his righteousness, his forgiveness to any and all that will follow after him. Romans 6.23, which I mentioned earlier, says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is in and through Jesus that forgiveness and eternal life is possible. It's not about us. It's not about what we do. But it's about who he is and what he has done. Jesus loves you. He died for you. And like the shepherd, he is searching for you. There are people in your life and in this church that love you. That are praying for you. And they long for you to experience Jesus. So if that's you, maybe today is the day that you come to Jesus, that you ask for his forgiveness and you put your trust in him. The Bible says when you do that, God is faithful to forgive you. And the Bible tells us all of heaven celebrates when just one comes to saving faith in him. And I guarantee you, whether you know it or not, there are family members, friends, co-workers in your life that have been praying for you, that have been loving you with determination and desperation, and they cannot wait to celebrate with you. So if that's you and you have never put your faith in Jesus, would you do that today? Or maybe you're here and you're not ready, but would you talk with someone and ask your questions about what it means to follow Jesus and trust in him? I know it would be my joy to to talk with you and share with you the hope and forgiveness available in Jesus. So you can pray in your seats, in in your heart this morning if you're ready. Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are. I believe that you are able to forgive. 
I know that I have sinned and I have done things wrong. Would you please forgive me? Because I know you are able. I want to follow you and make you the Lord of my life. The Bible says you pray something like that with a determined faith, with a genuine heart. He is faithful to forgive. And he will forgive. And if you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus, then you are the friend in this story. Who are those people that God has placed in your life? Those people that you need to not give up on, but instead stand in the gap for. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a prodigal child that has, has seemingly left the family and the faith. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a coworker. Who has God placed in your life and placed a burden on your heart for? Would you fan the determination and desperation in your heart as you love them, as you serve them, as you pray for them, as you bring them to the feet of Jesus? A practical thing I would encourage you to do, I would encourage you to write their names down. and Commit to praying for those people regularly. Pray with determination and desperation, expecting God to move in their life. Like these friends, bring them to the feet of Jesus, expecting him and knowing that he is able to save. And when he does, go back to that list and celebrate what God has done. This is such an incredible story of friendship, of faith, and of the power of Jesus. This man was paralyzed, but he had some incredible friends that didn't give up on him. Some incredible friends that didn't disown him. Some incredible friends that didn't move on for him. But instead, they believed the one thing their friend needed was Jesus. And they did whatever it took to get him to the feet of Jesus. And then when their friend met Jesus, his life was changed and their life was changed. I, I can only imagine the celebration that ensued after they walked out of that door. If you are a follower of Jesus, I want you to take a second and just remember that time. Remember that moment that you surrendered your life to Jesus. That you experienced his forgiveness of sins. As you think about that time, who were the friends in your life? Who were the, the family members in your life? Who were the parents who were the co-workers? Who was the coach? Who was the neighbor that interceded on your behalf and brought you to the feet of Jesus? As you think about those people, how grateful are you for those people who sacrificed so that you might know Jesus? I would encourage you to do two things with that. One, be those friends of someone else. And secondly, give those people a call this week. Write them a letter, write them an email, send them a Facebook message, and just say thank you. I guarantee you that will be an incredible encouragement to them. And then go be that friend to someone else. Intercede, share the good news, and bring people to the feet of Jesus. I'm going to pray for us as we close. As I do, the worship team is going to come and lead us in a final song. Dear Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you that you sent Jesus and that he willingly went to the cross and gave his life on our behalf. And because of that, Lord, we thank you that, that you are willing and that you are able to forgive the sins of any and all that will repent and turn to you. God, I pray that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, that today would be the day that they surrender their lives and they put their faith in you and their eternity is changed. God, I pray that you would give people the courage to do that today. That you give them the courage to ask for help or ask questions of a friend or, or somebody else here in the church that they would investigate who you are, Lord, and they would ultimately surrender their lives and experience forgiveness of sins. God, and I give thanks in my life, and I give thanks on behalf of, of those here, for those that are followers of you. God, I give thanks for those faithful friends and family members and, and parents and coaches and coworkers that pointed us to Jesus, that brought us to the feet of Jesus, Lord, and then our lives were changed. And God, I pray that we would be those kind of people. 
that we would be like these friends, that we would pray with desperation for our friends and family, that we would live lives of determination, that sacrifice for ourselves, that our friends can be brought to the feet of Jesus, that we would be people that do whatever it takes to get those around us to the feet of Jesus. Lord, that we would do so knowing that you are willing and able to forgive. God, we thank you for that. We thank you for the confidence we can have in your forgiveness. We thank you that you are able and that you are powerful. God, would you send us out this week as these kind of friends, desperate and determined to bring our friends to you. God, we love you. Lord, we thank you for this story and the faith it shows. God, we thank you that you are willing and able to heal. It's your name we pray. Amen.